We are in the middle of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 today, uh, continuing there in verses 11 through 19. As you read through the Psalms uh, in the Old Testament, you see again and again these expressions uh, from the, the psalmists, the, the poets there, uh, of just delighting in God's presence, just delighting in God's presence and, and longing to be in God's presence in the temple of God, in the Old Testament temple. C.S. Lewis, he, he comments on, on this connection between the thoughts of the temple and, and, and thoughts of enjoying God uh, in his reflections on the Psalms. And he writes this, he says, these poets knew far less reason than we for loving God, yet they express a longing for him for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or to Christians in their best moments. They long to live their days in the temple so that they may constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord, Psalm 27.4. Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like physical thirst as the deer pants for the water, right? Psalm 42. For Jerusalem... Um, uh, his presence, uh, from Jerusalem, his presence flashes out in perfect beauty, Psalm 50, verse 2. Lacking that encounter with him, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside, Psalm 63, 2. They crave to be satisfied with the, the pleasures of his house, Psalm 65, verse 4. Only there can they be at ease like a bird in the nest, Psalm 84, 3. One day of those pleasures is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere. Psalm 84, 10. The Israelites knew that God's presence was everywhere. They knew God's omnipresent, like he's, he's everywhere. But they also understood that the temple of God, and specifically the, the most holy place within the temple, was the place where God's presence dwelled with his people. Right? It was the place where, where God's presence could be accessed, where they could have access to it. Uh, and so, as Lewis points out, you just hear again and again throughout the Psalms this longing to be in God's presence, this rejoicing in being in God's presence in the temple. And even the thought of, of being near the temple filled them with joy and delight because the temple meant access to God. It meant access to God. And access to God was seen as the highest good, because, as it should be, right? Because access to God means that, that there, it assumes a right relationship with God. It, it means that there's acceptance from God, that there's welcome from God to be in His presence. It means forgiveness of sins. It means a restored right relationship with God. That's what access means. But the reality of the old, for the Old Testament Israelites was that even though they longed for and delighted in access to God, their access was very limited, very limited. No matter how good or righteous they seemed to be, their access was limited. In fact, only one person on one day of the year was allowed to enter into that most holy place of the temple, right? The high priest on the day of atonement. And on that day, he was only allowed to do that after going through these ceremonial washings, making a, a sacrifice, offering a sacrifice for his own sins. Only after all of that was he then himself allowed to enter into that most holy place and there offer a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. One person, one day a year. That's it. The reality 
is that, that God's perfect holiness and our comprehensive sinfulness are incompatible. That's why it's so restrictive. Under the old covenant, as outlined in the Old Testament law, access to God had to be restricted. The law was powerless to bridge the gap between, uh, between us and God and to reconcile us to Him. But the moment of Christ's death on the cross, the most remarkable thing happens. At the moment that, 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 that Jesus Christ gives up His Spirit, right? He, he dies on the cross. We are told in the Gospels that in the temple... The, the veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple is literally torn from top to bottom. It's torn in two, displaying uh, that, that the inauguration of a new and perfect high priest and a new and better covenant. And that longing for access to God has become a thing of the past for Christians. We now, we now have access. That's what it represents as free we have free, bold access directly to God was made possible by the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And why are we talking about this? Well, access to God is really the focus of the passage that we're, we're, we're going to look at today. By contrasting the, the priesthood of Jesus with the, the Old Testament Levitical priests, uh, the author of Hebrews shows us that we have a better priest who comes possessing a better qualification and who secures for us a, a better hope of full, free, ongoing, direct access to the presence of God. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. If you haven't already, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 7, 11 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are grateful for your gracious love for us that moved you before the foundation of the world to set in motion the plan to send your son to accomplish our rescue, to reconcile us to you, to make access to you, ongoing full access to your presence available to us again. Jesus, thank you for your work as our great, our better, our perfect priest who mediates between us and God. 
who offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins once and for all. Holy Spirit, enable us to to see what a gift we have been given in Jesus. What a gift it is to, to have this ongoing presence with us, in us, through you. And help us to rejoice. Help us to press in. Help us to live in the fullness of that more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. We have in Jesus a better priest who possesses a better qualification, who secures for us a better hope. That's what we see here. First, we see that we, we need, we have a need for, and we have in the person of Jesus a better priest. Uh, the preacher of Hebrews helps us see this by, by highlighting the, the inability and the insufficiency of the Levitical priesthood. That's the point of verse 11. Read the, that again for you. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Right. The, the Levitical priests, in other words, were incapable of bringing and delivering perfection. And in the Bible, the, this word perfection uh, often carries with it the meaning of completeness or maturity. Not necessarily always meaning perfect, like it's absolutely perfect. It, it, it often means complete or, or maturity. But as one commentator says, the meaning of perfection here is more specialized and means to put some, someone in the position in which she or he can come and stand before God. That's what perfection means here. Putting someone in the position where they can come and stand before God. In other words, it's referring to access to God, a restored, right relationship with God. But we're being told here that the Levitical priests and the old covenant law were unable to deliver this. Right? For if they were able to deliver this, why would we hear a word in Psalm 110 about another priest after the order of Melchizedek who's going to come later? We wouldn't need that if they were able to deliver this. There'd be no need. Now, this is not a knock against the, the, uh, the Levitical priest, right? Uh, for you kids today, right? The, uh, the author of Hebrews is not throwing shade. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be hip with the, the lingo. I'm, I'm still studying Gen Z. I got a long way to go. Um, but, but he's simply stating a reality here. He's, he's stating a reality. Perfection was, was never going to be attainable through the Levitical priesthood. It was never going to be attainable through, through the law. The law doesn't make you perfect. If it would have been, Psalm 110 would have never been given to us. The prophecy about another priest arising after the order of Melchizedek, that we would never have had that. The truth is, the very existence of the Levitical priesthood was an illustration that perfection, ongoing direct access to God, was not attainable under the old covenant law. It highlights that reality that this is not possible, this is not attainable under the old covenant law. For the law demands perfection. Perfection. But we don't really understand perfection. We don't really get it. So I I love baseball. Uh, Although this year's weird, all the stupid rules and this short season. But I I love baseball nonetheless. Uh, Let's say a pitcher throws a 
perfect game, right? And for those of you who don't know baseball, a perfect game means one pitcher pitches a complete game, faces the minimum number of batters, right? 27 outs in a baseball game. So 27 up, 27 down. He retires all 27 batters. There's, there's no walks. There's no hits. There, there are no errors made by any member of his team. It's a, a perfect game. But the question I have for you is, is that game really perfect? If you think about it, do you think that pitcher who threw that perfect game, right, hit the precise location with every single pitch he threw throughout that game? That he never missed it once. Every single pitch was, was perfect. No, of course not. Right? If you're a baseball fan, you realize that there's great plays that get made in a, a perfect game and a lot of things that come through. There's a lot of just, you know, sheer bless, blessing or luck, whatever you want to call it there. Um, the Bible tells us that for human beings, perfection is actually unattainable. True perfection, absolute objective perfection is unattainable. That the fall of man, sin entering the world, has stained everything. It's stained everything and therefore nothing is truly perfect. Now, you may balk at that, and that is a baseball intended pun right there. Uh, you, you may balk at that, but, but it's only because imperfect human, as imperfect humans, we grow accustomed to grading everything on a curve. We grade everything subjectively. We say something's perfect because, well, it's the, the best paper that was submitted from the class, right? Uh, we, we say that it, it, it's perfect because it's better than what we see in someone else. We grade everything on a curve, but here's the thing. God does not. He does not grade on a curve. His law demands complete and total objective perfection. And as human beings, the Levitical priests, despite being set apart in God's law for their priestly role of mediating between God and people, Right? They were incapable of perfection. They were incapable of accomplishing that. Uh, they were incapable of mediating, mediating uh, perfection and accomplishing salvation on behalf of the people with, with God, making it possible for all of the people to have this restored, reconciled, right relationship and with ongoing access directly to God. They were incapable of that. But that wasn't the point of the Levitical priests. That wasn't the point of the law. They were never meant to accomplish perfection for us, but rather to show us our need. Paul explains this to us in Romans chapter 7 when he starts explaining that, that the law, and especially, especially the, the commandment uh, to not covet, uh, made him aware of his sin. He, he tells us there that he reads in the law, thou shalt not covet. And what happens for, for Paul is that he realizes at that moment, well, pretty much all I do is covet. Like, as soon as I get the commandment, I realize everything I do is coveting all the time. I'm always breaking the law. And in, in doing so, the, the law served to show him his sin, to help him see how spiritually dead he was. You see, the, the law exposes that we don't just need a little bit of improvement. We don't just need a little boost, a little bit of help from someone else. No, we are dead in our sins. We are dead. We need a resurrection. We need someone to come from the outside and make us alive. Right? The law of God in setting apart uh, the stipulations for the Levitical priesthood and outlining the sacrificial system 
also serves to show us our need for redemption, that we need a perfect high priest, a better priest, who will come and offer a perfect sacrifice once and for all that will atone for all of our sins, reconciling us to God and enabling us dead sinners who are, who are sentenced to, to be eternally separated from God, who will make atonement for our sins and enable us to come into his presence, accepted, welcomed, forgiven, embraced. You see, the Levitical sacrifices in the Old Testament, they covered over sin, but they could never remove it. They can never remove it. We need a better priest and a better sacrifice to remove our sins, to clothe us in his perfection and enable us to, to once again be in the presence of God. Jesus, friends, is that better priest. He's that perfect priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. He's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who we talked about last week. So if you want to know more about Melchizedek, go listen to the sermon from last week. But, but Melchizedek, right? Like Melchizedek, Jesus is a high priest appointed by God forever, who comes outside of, of the Levites. He's not a descendant of Levi. He's not a descendant of Aaron, he comes from outside of that group, appointed by God to be a priest forever. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king priest. Jesus is a, a descendant from the tribe of Judah, the line of the kings in Israel, not the priests, the kings. David comes from Judah, and, and Jesus is the promised Davidic king who's going to restore the throne of David, reestablish that throne. He's the perfect king priest because as the eternal son of God, he's objectively perfect. Not subjectively, not on a curve, objectively perfect as the Son of God. Only Jesus could be our perfect priest because he is both fully God and fully man, which makes him objectively perfect and also able to represent us and, and intercede between us and God, mediate between us and God, making Jesus alone intrinsically perfect to serve as our high priest, our mediator. Jesus comes as a better priest, a perfect priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice not to not just cover over our sins, but to remove them, the scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west. He takes them from us. And by placing our trust in Jesus alone, he clothes us. He covers us with his perfection. That we stand in his perfection enables us to come boldly, not sheepishly, right? But boldly before the presence of God and into his presence freely. Not once a year, not one day, not one person, but all of us who are in Christ, ongoing, day by day, moment by moment, he grants us access to God. He is the better priest that we need. We know this, the author tells us, because Jesus comes with and possesses a better qualification, a better qualification. Uh, we see also in this text a, a contrast between the, the qualifications of the Levitical priesthood uh, with the qualifications Jesus possesses to serve as priest. So what are the qualifications for the Levitical priesthood? I know you were asking and wanting to know. Uh, first off, right, they have to be descendants of Levi. They have to be Levites, 
That God in, his, in the Old Testament law, he sets apart. And so much of the Mosaic Code it has to deal with, with the Levitical priesthood and all the stipulations surrounding that. He sets apart the Levites, the tribe of Levi, to serve as priests. Beginning with Aaron and his sons, right? They, they serve as a priest and, and, and they descend down from there. That means that a Levite who serves as a priest, his father served as priest. And his father before him. And his father before him, right? It's, it's, it's based on your ancestry, your, your lineage here. They were required to have no physical defects. The Levitical code, in fact, lists out 142 physical blemishes that could disqualify a Levite from serving as priest. You can read about some of those if you want a little extra credit work. Uh, Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 through 23. Check that out later. Uh, as you look into it, though, what you find is that all of these qualifications for the Levitical priesthood are external. They're all external. They're all external. Even the ordination ceremony for the Levitical priest was focused on the external with specific instructions for how he was to be bathed, clothed, anointed with oil, and marked with blood. It's all external. In his ongoing service as priest, there would be more instructions about specific washings, anointings, and even specifications about the priestly haircutting, which if you're, if you're me, you're fascinated by. Um, I like haircuts. Uh, the, the focus was purely external here. It's purely external. But, but here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. And Jesus, you know, he's not a Levite. He's not descended from Levi. He's not descended from Aaron. But rather, he's from Judah, we're told here. He's from Judah. We see that in his genealogy in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. He's from Judah, who the author tells us in verse 14. Moses said nothing about priests from the tribe of Judah. Priests don't come from Judah. They come from Levi. Kings come from Judah. And in fact, as we talked about last week, the Old, Old Testament strictly divides these roles of king and priest. Strictly divides them, right? Priests come from the Levites, and priests cannot serve as king in Israel. Kings descend through the line of Judah, and kings cannot serve as priests. We talked about King Uzziah last week in Isaiah 6.1, the year that he died. Well, he died because he broke God's law, broke God's commandment, and tried to serve as a priest for himself. And he was struck with leprosy, cast out until he died. There's a strict division here. But here's Jesus from Judah, coming after the order of Melchizedek, as a, as a, who is also a king priest. Jesus comes as the ultimate perfect king priest. This doesn't strike us uh, in the same way because most of us in this room, uh, I'm pretty sure, are not Jewish. Uh, we don't have that background. We don't have that foundation. But for the Israelites, and even for these first century Jewish Christians whom the author of Hebrews is directly addressing initially with this, this sermon that is a letter, uh, the, their background would have made hearing that Jesus was a priest from the line of Judah not only shocking, but that have been like, wait a minute, that's illegal. That's illegal. So how can Jesus be qualified to serve as our perfect priest? 
The author gives us Jesus' one glorious qualification in verses 15 and 16. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is not qualified based on his ancestry, but rather he is qualified by something infinitely greater and eternally superior, the power of an indestructible life. The Levitical priests all died, right? They all died. They had term limits on their priesthood, and and one term limit was their death, right? They were done for sure then. Uh, Their time to serve as priests came and went, But the priesthood of Jesus Christ is eternal. It's forever. It is never ending. And we say those words in church a lot. But take a moment and just think about how we are unable to even grasp what that word forever means. Forever. That's how long his priesthood goes on. It has no end. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus didn't die. We we know that Jesus died on the cross, that he offered himself there as the the once-for-all perfect sacrifice to pay for our sins. He went there in our place, exchanged his perfect life for our sins, and went to die in our place. And he died. At the moment of his death, right, the the veil, uh, the temple, the most surrounding the most holy place, torn in two, he died. But Jesus died, and death could not hold him. It could not hold him. His death was followed by his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is his supreme qualification. His resurrection is what is being referenced here by the power of an indestructible life. Death could not hold him. He's a high priest on the basis of his resurrection. That's implicit in the quote here from Psalm 110 verse 4 that's found in verse 17, where God the Father is addressing God the Son, saying, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His qualification isn't external. It's internal. It's internal. The power of an indestructible life. He's a better priest. Jesus is a better priest with a better qualification, and he secures for us a better hope. Look again at verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Levitical priesthood and the law can never perfect anything. It only served to show us our desperate need, right? Our our desperate condition apart from God that we desperately need to be made right with him. But Jesus is the great high priest. He, He is the great high priest, and he came and he lived a perfectly sinless, righteous life in our place. And then he offered himself as that once and for all sacrifice for our sins, dying in our place the death that we deserve. He he literally tore in two the veil of the temple. And by his resurrection, he inaugurates his perfect and forever priesthood, securing for us a better hope with unprecedented access to God. 
that through faith in Jesus, being united with Christ in faith, united with Christ in faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, we could be washed clean and made spotless before God. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he awakens our hearts to embrace Christ in faith. He gives us new life. He resurrects us spiritually. Jesus clothes us in his own perfection. He makes it so we can have ongoing access to God. He secured for us a better hope, a hope through which we can now draw near to God. We no longer have to go through another human priest, right, to have that priest mediate between us and God. We, we don't need that. We, we don't need to pray to Catholic saints so, so that they could put in a good word with, with God for us. We, we don't have, have to do that. We don't, we don't need that because we have, as Christians, direct, ongoing access to God through the Son. God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Right? Praying to Catholic saints or needing a human priest to, to mediate between us. That'd be sort of like saying, you're the son of, of Jeff Bezos, right? The Amazon dude. You're his son or you're his daughter. Or you're his child. You live in his house with him. But you want to reach out and, and talk to your dad so you call his personal assistant and see if you could set up a meeting. If you're his child, why would you do that? If you're his child living there in his home, you don't reach out to his assistant. You go right to him and you talk with him. We don't need any other mediator than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man himself. We don't have to come to a special place. There's no temple, like structure that we go to. Scriptures tell us that we are a temple now as Christians. We don't have to go to a special place. We, we have access wherever we are because Christ is in us through the working of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within the Christian. You are in Christ and he is in you. We don't, we don't come to church. We don't come to church because this is the place where God's presence is. You understand that, right? His presence is in you, Christian. He is in you. We don't come to church because this is where God's presence is and we get to be in his presence for a little bit of time on Sunday. No, we're always in his presence. His presence is always in us. But gathering with the church is the most important thing we do every week because we gather with our brothers and sisters in this time and God himself through his word, he addresses us, he confronts us with his gospel with the community of believers around us, that we might be built up in the faith, that we might be made to be more and more like Jesus as we worship the Lord together, encouraging and admonishing one another. This is, this is a vitally important thing that we do, but that we're not doing it because this is where God's presence is. His presence is in us. His presence is with us. It's always at our disposal. Like we always have that ongoing access. Because we are united with Christ and he is in us wherever we are. These days that we're walking through, right, should, I think, highlight how significant this is. How significant this is and how much we need this better hope. And for those of you who are like, well, what's the point? Why should I be excited about this? Well, this is why. Like we're living in days where uh, 
uh, I hope you don't watch too much news because it just only serves to build anxieties and I, I think just it's awful. But our nation seems to be boiling over with just hate at one another and tearing one another apart. And, and I cannot help but grieve in these days for our, our black brothers and sisters in the black community in particular who continue to, to suffer injustice, to be treated with, with inequality. And I hear, right? You don't, see, here's the thing. You don't need to see all of a video or know all of a story to hear in people's hearts the pain and the grief and, and, and the, the struggle, the, the anger, uh, the weariness over injustice after injustice after injustice that they continue to face in our nation. And they shouldn't be the only ones grieving that. Jesus says, weep with those who weep. That's his posture. That should be our posture, to weep with those who weep. I cannot help but be grieved by that. At the same time, um, and I met with one brother this week, right? I cannot help but have empathy for the police officers and their families who are a part of this body, who I know in my friendships with them, seek to do their jobs with integrity, with compassion for the community that we live in, the city that we live in. I cannot help but have empathy for them. It's a very difficult job. We're living in the midst of a pandemic that seems to have no end in sight. And then if, uh, you know, our friends to the south welcomed a hurricane this week. I mean, it, do we not see that we need a better hope? We need a better hope. That better hope, friends, is not going to be found in an election this November. And, and, and we are not, we're not a church, we're a church, so we're not going to get too political here. I mean, all I'll say is that neither one of those clowns uh, represent my hope, right? Our hope is not going to be found in an election. No matter how this election goes, that's not going to be where our hope is found. Now, at the same time, I encourage you and I implore you as a citizen of this country to exercise your civic duty and privilege and go vote, right? Participate. But, but as you vote, don't put your hope in your vote and don't put your hope in the way the election goes because that is not a hope that's going to deliver for you. No matter how it goes, no matter how it goes. Our hope is not found in presidents. Our hope is not found in vaccines. Anything else under the sun. Our hope, our better hope, is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. He's, he's the one who heals the divides that we create between us. Right? He destroys the dividing wall of hostility. And he makes us one in him. We need Jesus. But we don't have to hope uh, that we, we grab hold of that hope in the same way that, that many of us are hoping that, hey, tomorrow we're going to hear that there's a, a vaccine for COVID-19, right? It's not a hope like that. We have certain hope. The Bible talks about hope much differently. Certain, sure, dependable, rock-solid hope in Jesus Christ, that in him we have free, ongoing, direct access to God, even right now. And in his presence, we're told, there is peace. 
in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, we are told, there are pleasures forevermore. My question for you is, have you embraced that hope? Have you received that hope? Have you clung to that hope? Have you stopped trying to find your hope in the things of this world? Have you stopped putting your hope in circumstances and relationships and politics? Jesus invites you to turn from those things and come running to him and and find in him a better hope, a certain hope. If you know that hope, I mean, how much does it shame you and me, Christian, (laughs) to consider the psalmist, the poets in the Psalms, their great passion for the presence of God when we have much greater access and our passion pales in comparison. We take it for granted. They long to live all of their days in the temple of the Lord, to gaze upon his beauty. They crave the pleasure of his presence. And may the, may the better hope and the greater access we enjoy move us to more and more press into his presence that we take for granted to come boldly before the Lord day by day, moment by moment, expressing our great joy that we get to enjoy this access, experiencing his peace as we rest in his presence and being renewed and restored and perfected by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, that we live in a day where you have granted free, ongoing access to your presence through your Son. Jesus, thank you for being our perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for making joy and peace accessible through through your perfect priestly work that grants us ongoing access to you. Holy Spirit, in these heavy days, help us to know that Christ is in us, that your presence is with us, and move us to draw near to you, to rejoice in you, to rest in you, that we might be strengthened to better worship and live for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.